It's a Monday, and we have a special guest for the week on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. With Laura Johnston taking a break this week, we've brought on reporter Courtney Astolfi, our City Hall reporter in the newsroom, to fill in for her. Welcome, Courtney. Thanks for having me. Happy Monday. Woo-hoo, I'm Chris Quinn. Uh, I'm <laughs> Well, I'm here with Layla Tassi. We still don't have Lisa Garvin, but she is having an overhaul of her technical system tomorrow, so we expect her to be back in the house on Wednesday. So today, it's me, Layla, and Courtney. Let's begin. We talked Friday about how Governor Mike DeWine and his fellow elected Republicans have forced Ohio into a constitutional crisis with their refusal to draw fair legislative maps and their total defiance of the Ohio Supreme Court. Late Friday, the Ohio Supreme Court struck back, doing the almost unthinkable. What was it, Layla? This is such an extraordinary turn of events. Ohio Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor demanded that DeWine and the other members of the Ohio Redistricting Commission explain why they should not be held in contempt for failing to follow the court order to produce a new state legislative map map last week. And she gave them until noon Wednesday to respond. So we are going to be on pins and needles <laughs> waiting to see what how that shakes out. I mean, the order also directs plaintiffs in the case, which include, you know, a collection of voting rights groups, Democrats, and these left-leaning advocacy groups, to not file motions in the case unless specifically directed to do so by the court. Those groups that sued Ohio and got the illegally gerrymandered maps tossed out, you know, had been asking the question we all wanted to know in court filings last week, they all asked the the redistricting commission to explain why it didn't approve new maps by the the court imposed deadline, and and they you know wanted an answer by Tuesday. So this changes the uh, uh, the situation considerably. That um, you know, well, I mean, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they immediately filed, and the Supreme Court is saying, "You're out of this. This is now between us <laughs> and the commission." Right. This is look. This is this is a complete disrespect for the rule of law by the governor, yeah. by the auditor, by all these folks are are just interfering with the court process. I what I I was waiting to see. Maureen O'Connor demands respect for this court. Mm-hmm, she always mm-hmm. has, and I was waiting to see whether she would put up with their complete defiance. She's not, and you know that's that's the rule. You have to have a hearing before you hold somebody in contempt. You can fine them. You can jail them. I've said it before. I would love for her to say, "Okay, guys, you haven't made the maps. I got a jail cell waiting for you. You can come out when you produce a map." I think it would be the best way to bring this to. Uh, to a close, but she's also saying to the to the plaintiffs, th- "You're not a part of this now. Right. This is a defiance of the court." So well, the commission has very quickly scheduled a meeting for today <laughs> to figure out what to do. I think Dewine and company believed the court would not go this far, and they really, really underestimated more. How could you? Not, how, could you, <laughs> why would you how did how did they think this was going to end? I mean, 
like DeRolf. They just thought, oh, well, they made the ruling. We're ignoring it. We'll move on. Here's the thing. My favorite part of this is Pat DeWine, who violated every judicial canon in existence and stayed on this case involving his father, now is coming to a moment where he might have to vote on whether to hold his father in contempt. That's why he should have recused himself. That's what this was about from the start. So there think- is no way that's not a conflict of interest. I mean, at that point, will he? Will there be a recusal for him? I mean, How can you? <laughs> How can that be the moment? That means that everything he's done up to now is a fraud. Oh, this guy was a fool to carry this this far. And I suspect Mike DeWine knows this. And is probably going to talk to his fellow Republicans to say, let's let's come up with a fair map. We, I don't want my son voting on my contempt right. charge. It's just the greatest situation. You know, when these guys in their just naked grab for power, right, trying to hold on to as many seats as possible, even though the Constitution says you can't. They've pushed us to the precipice of yeah. broken government. And the only thing standing in the way of a complete collapse is Maureen O'Connor. I know. Right, right. It's, it's interestingly, the the, uh, the plaintiffs, when their filings last week, they were really nudging the court along, like e- egging them on, saying, you know, these guys blew you off completely. Are you going to just stand <laughs> for this? Come on. It's a challenge to your authority. I thought that was great. But, you know, what happens then to this this weird, you know, side story here, this federal lawsuit that the Republican activists filed basically to perform an end around of the Ohio Supreme Court. I it's mean, a stunt. Yeah. So so what's that? What's going to happen there? I mean, it's Nothing. they're asking the court to appoint this three judge panel to impose yeah. the map that it, the Supreme Ohio Supreme Court had already rejected. <laughs> It's a stunt. It's it. It has no meaning. I, I don't believe the federal court will do it. The federal court's going to say the state court process is in, in, in play. There is a system for this and they're following it. There's there's no standing for, for them to do this. I think the Republicans were hoping for a Hail Mary with that. But but Maureen O'Connor has said, no, you got till Wednesday. So I, I bet they sit down today. Look, the smartest thing DeWine could do, forget Huffman and Cup, the House Speaker and the Senate President. Those yeah. guys are just villains. They're never going to work together. The Lima boys. Right. <laughs> grab grab Secretary of State Frank LaRose, grab Auditor Keith Faber, go with the Democrats and say, let's work this out. They're not that far away. They just have to agree to leave out Cup and Huffman, who are simply bad yeah. guys in I mean, this story. Even DeWine said last week that they had a legal obligation to turn in something. I mean, he told reporters Thursday night, we have an obligation under the law to get them a third map. He said, so I think it's a mistake for this commission to stop and basically say that they're at an impasse. So he acknowledged that. I mean, yeah. And and now he's putting his son in the jackpot. (laughs) If his son has to vote on a contempt citation for his dad, I, I would love to be in the room for that. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Why has Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb turned to the FBI to investigate Cleveland Police Gang Unit officers on use of force incidents after they were cleared by the city's internal affairs investigators on those incidents? Courtney, I'm trying to understand this one because they have an investigation that says nothing wrong, and now they're going to the feds to investigate again? Yeah, there's a big question mark here for me, too. If I, as... as the president of the Cleveland Police Union, Jeff Fulmer, said, already cleared these cases 
previously he, he called this FBI referral politically motivated, then what the heck is going on on the city's end? Did the IA drop the ball before? Why are they essentially reopening these cases now? Did more evidence come to life? There, there's too many question marks here. And, you know, the city didn't respond to a bunch of questions that we sent in about this. So we don't really have answers at the moment. Yeah, I just don't I don't get it because it it's a vote of no confidence in your IA department. And let's face it, the monitor in the consent decree has been very critical of how how the department has investigated these kinds of things since the consent decree. But I don't know. We just we're not getting the list of the incidents, right? So we don't really know what they're saying have to be investigated. Right. We don't we don't know what's going on here. Um the city just said you know, the IA investigation revealed possible patterns of inappropriate behavior. No more specificity there. But, you know, I think an, another question this raises is you talk about the longstanding issues the consent decree has identified in, in IA at CPD. And for me, this raises the question of why can't Cleveland police handle this in-house? Let, let's say they did stumble upon something they missed previously. Why shop it out? Is this going to be something Cleveland police routinely does? This is this is an odd move. What's the reasoning? Well, and the feds don't have the resources to become the Cleveland Police Internal Affairs Department. It, it I, I just, it's an odd one. It's, it's how bad were these cases? If, if you have a problem with an internal affairs, why aren't you fixing internal affairs? Obviously, he did this in concert with his respected safety director, Carrie Howard. But I, I just it's an odd thing to do without really explaining it. Adam Faris got wind of this and, and reported a well-sourced story before the city even said anything. And then they issued a rather vague statement about it. But I, I mean, this is part of a trend we've seen. When Michael Malley became prosecutor, he immediately farmed out all police force incidents to the attorney general's office, which he claims gives it independence because he works with the cops and has a conflict. But others say you've taken away your accountability. Part of the job of the prosecutor is to handle crimes and how you handle police goes to whether you should be elected again. But he's completely given that away. So we'll have to see how this investigation turns out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is the Cuyahoga County Mental Health Board spending our tax dollars and what the board views as wellness initiatives for employees? Layla, Caitlin Durbin had another winner over the weekend. This, <laughs> this one defies imagination. <laughs> yeah, so the, the Alcohol, Drug Addiction, and Mental Health Services Board, in 2017, they, they put together this wellness initiative for its employees under a provision of the collective bargaining agreement with the union that represents about half of the Adams employees. Under that provision, employees are allowed to seek training, seminars, conference, or tuition reimbursement for employees in good standing. A little vague. So the Adams Board took that to that language to basically mean pretty much any expense you can think of that could contribute to the wellness of an employee would be covered up to $1,000 per person. And so recently, they submitted an expense to the county for, for reimbursement for nearly $1,000 worth of golf lessons for one employee. And the county's fiscal officer, Michael Chambers, asked, how does that qualify? And the Adams Board Chief Administrative Officer, Tammy Fisher, said the language of the CBA is vague and means 
any type of training, as long as the activities that are unrelated to the person's job duties are scheduled outside of work hours. In an email to to Chambers, um, she wrote, you know, it's intentionally broad to allow for personal and professional development, which makes for a healthy, happy employee. So, you know, of course, Chambers denied this request. (laughs) And he said, you know, it's plainly not a good use of public funds. And the Adams board dug in on it. And they made the point that the county had previously approved other similar expenses that were pretty frivolous. Some of those examples include, I mean, like, hold on to your hat, (laughs) nearly $500 for, for various purchases of skills training classes through Groupon, uh, a $48 sewing book, $13 anger management workbook, $70 for intro to glass blowing classes. <laughs> I mean, that's so relaxing, but like, you know, <laughs> that's your wellness well, initiative. So oh, oh, a course on how to write children's books and, um, you know, <laughs> Amen University's Healing ADD at Home in 30 Days online course. Um $179 to Business Boutique Academy, which is an entrepreneur training program for women. Um, another example showed an employee re- receiving $1,000 to pay much of the cost of 20 private ballroom dancing lessons. So, I mean, they've now agreed upon a new policy, which only covers training seminars, conference books, materials for things directly related to the employee's job duties. And, you know, the Adams board is kind of like, okay, well, we're not going to fight that one. They're just going to well, like keep. I, I, I am kind of staggered that they were spending money this way. It's just tax dollars. I mean, no. You're supposed to be a guardian of that. And sending people to ballroom dance lessons on the tax dime, it's just not going to play well. You know, the Adams board came in for some controversy a few months ago when the Metro Health CEO, Akram Boutros, without providing any evidence, basically accused them of being a miserable failure. Yeah, you know, if you if you're really going to defend yourself, you shouldn't have vulnerabilities like this. I mean, you want to make employees really happy? Just pay them not to work. I mean, yeah. what's, what's the what's the extension of this? How far do you go? Uh, I just don't think this is what people think about when you're talking about wellness initiatives. Good for Caitlin for catching it and good for the county for rejecting it. The, the Adams board did say, you know, they've approved a lot of these in the yeah, past. Right. Like, that's a defense. Chambers, I know, like, Chambers was like, well, all right, shame on us for not catching this. And he said he won't. they won't be seeking compensation for those inappropriate uses of the money, but he said he's going to use these as training examples for his staff who review these expense reports in the future. So... <laughs> What about audits? Why isn't the annual audit of the books it's finding stuff like this? I don't know. It's this, a great question. I wonder uh, it's like, if it's if it's allowable under the CBA. Would it? Oh, would I that guess pass they would. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess so. If, that, if they would have said it was justified expense, I guess it would. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, they said, the the Adams board said this isn't, you know, this isn't a giveaway to employees. They said the ability to engage (laughs) in outside interests and pursuits certainly advances the board's interest in having a happy, healthy workforce. You know, I think we should, we should adopt a policy like that, Chris. Yeah, I have thousand yeah, dollars worth of babysitting <laughs> I want to expense so I can go pursue my interests. <laughs> okay, we'll get right on that. You are listening to Today in Ohio.
Courtney, it's Kismet. You're here. I'm going to take you back to one of your previous lives. The Cedar Point police have full arrest powers and everything else that goes along with being police in Ohio. So are they real police or not? And why does it matter? You have personal experience dealing with them from a previous job. Yes, I do. Oh, I could talk for hours about this. Um, I was previously the cops reporter in Sandusky for the local paper Sandusky Register, which is now suing Cedar Point police to get their hands on records that the park contends are not public. Now, <laughs> this has been a longstanding debate in Sandusky. You, you can't get, as a reporter, you can't get any information out of the park about alleged crimes that happen over there. And, you know, Cedar Point has this argument that, that they're essentially a security department for a private company. We're not subject to Ohio public records law, but their police officers are sworn in they're certified. They are they are lawful police under Ohio law. So I'm going to argue exactly what the register argues. They are 100% subject to that law. Yeah, and there's a lot of court precedent for that. They're going to lose. I, I mean, the, 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 the thing I thought they would do, because we've seen other police departments do this, is just write up reports with nothing in them, right? So you do an incident report with name, date, time, with no narrative, so that when you do turn over the records, there's nothing to, to turn over. They all We've seen them play this game in the private department. They've taken a tack that we don't have to, which I just, they're not going to win that. They're, if, they, if they don't want to turn over records, then they shouldn't be police. They should be a private security department and the Sandusky police should go in. What do the Sandusky, from your experience, what do the Sandusky police think of this setup? You know, it, it strikes me that it it is what it is, is kind of their take. The Sandusky Police Department has been dealing with this for decades over at the park. This is a longstanding law in the city of Sandusky, and they, they, they jump in when needed for more serious things over at the, more serious things that are going on at the park, but... They, they just, it, the park generates so much revenue for the city of Sandusky's budget that it just kind of is what it is. And that's how that's things operate in town. Well, and, you know, the Cleveland Clinic has a police department. Metro Health has a police department. Tri-C and mm, Cleveland University State, they all Circle. have police departments. Yeah, University how, Circle. How do, how do those, like, quasi-private departments operate when it comes to public records? What's the, do they hand them over? Well, the, the the thing is, most of the stuff they handle is not stuff that would be news. It's it's minor kind of things that we don't get into. If there's a murder on the Cleveland Clinic campus, it's a Cleveland police investigation. If there's a carjacking, it's usually handled by the real police. And so there's not there's not often it, does it come up where we ask for it. We we do. I mean, it does happen, and some are easier than others to deal with. I mean, think about how difficult CMHA police were with the uh, the shooting. What was that a yeah. year ago? Yeah, I was thinking, you're right. Right. And, you know. It just strikes me that these smaller police departments that aren't as established as, say, Cleveland police or even the city of Sandusky police, you know, they, they require more public scrutiny. We don't know what they're doing. Um, in the case of Cedar Point Police, it's usually a lot of young guys fresh out of academy looking to start their career. So I, I argue the public ought to be seeing what these, you know, smaller, less experienced departments are doing day to day to citizens. 
Or they shouldn't exist at all. That basically policing is a municipal function and municipalities should run them and the municipalities are answerable to the public through elections of the mayors and the city councils. This is putting incredible power into a private company and now we see the result, the games they play trying to hide what went into a very serious accident involving a woman standing outside a ride when a chunk of metal hit her into the head. I hope the Sandusky Register wins. You are listening to Today in Ohio. The Ohio Democratic Party, Layla, opted not to endorse a candidate in the governor's race, leaving voters to choose from Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley and Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley. Early on in this race, though, it looked like Whaley was going to have the nomination sewn up. Is Cranley surging? That's a great question. I mean, so Jeremy brought us this piece of analysis after the Democratic Party decided not to endorse either of them. And Nan Whaley's campaign, you know, they, they really downplayed it. They're like, you know, we're still good. We're still strong enough to win in May. And, and, and in fact, a state party endorsement would just divide the party. We don't want that. But, you know, the non-endorsement, Jeremy says, is hardly a victory. Whaley had been considered the front runner, as you said. And clearly she wanted the party to clear the field for her before she ended up joining Cranley and asking them not to endorse in the race. And she had asked uh, for their endorsement on January 20th. And both she and Cranley interviewed with the party screening committee. But before they could make up their minds, the two candidates asked them not to endorse. So, you know, winning a state party endorsement is is worth a lot of cash and perks and free publicity. And, you know, you appear on the party sample ballot that's sent to the Democratic voters. So it, it does beg the question, you know, what went into Whaley's calculus in, in joining Cranley in that call to not endorse? I mean... Apparently, you know, it seems that the, the divisiveness of, of the endorsement process is what they're trying to avoid, This, you know, especially with two Democratic candidates who are so ideologically similar. But um, I don't know. At the moment, party's position is let the voters decide. So we'll see. Well, there is an argument to be made that in any open primary, the party shouldn't pick. It should let the voters decide because it builds some excitement for the candidate. There's always this feeling that when the party steps in, this happens in Cuyahoga all the time, that that it takes away the power of the vote and it and it causes hard feelings on those who don't get the nomination. On the Republican side, they have an incumbent, so that's kind of easy. The Republicans uh, endorsed uh, Mike DeWine. But on this side, I just when when Whaley came out, she came out way in advance of Cranley. She announced she was running. She started to get all sorts of endorsements from people like Sherrod Brown. And then Cranley got in much later. But since then, Cranley has been issuing some pretty clear policy arguments. I mean, we've talked often about how he would blow up the Public Utilities Commission, start over with people that actually represent the Mm -hmm, ratepayers, not just the utilities the way the they've been doing it as we know from HB6. So I don't know, maybe he's just picked up a lot of speed by talking substance. Of course, nobody knows who either of these people are in the northern part of the state. And when they run up against whichever one wins in the uh, in the November election, they're going to have to make a name for themselves against a candidate who is widely known. Right, right.
You know, and, and um, Jeremy pointed out that that often party or sometimes party endorsements can sow such divisions that it backfires in the general election. And he pointed out that the, the party endorsed Ted Strickland in 2006 and he won the general. But then they also endorsed Ed Fitzgerald, who lost by 30 percentage points in 2014. So, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes this is strategically the way to go. Uh, I don't think it was an endorsement. I think it was not having a driver's license that cost him that election, among other things. Oh, that was one of the wackiest elections we've ever seen. Uh, Ed Fitzgerald, just a blind spot, not having a driver's license. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Huff neighborhood in Cleveland has suffered through decades of decay despite the presence of Ohio's biggest employer in the middle of it in the Cleveland Clinic. Suddenly, it appears to be on the rebound in Huff. What's going on there, Courtney? Yes, reporter Steve Litt tells us in his recent story that there's up to $700 million worth of new or planned development that's slated for Huff over the next 10 years or so. You know, there's a lot going on planning-wise in that neighborhood, and that includes... You know, Allen Estates, a $100 million, nearly five-acre project that's um, seeking to to help reinvigorate the, the, this great part of the city. And that project's being led by developer Sheila Wright, you know, a, a black woman developer, former head of the NAACP. And, you know, what some have, you know, described as an opportunity to build wealth in the black community in a town that's, you know, usually that's happening at, at the hands of white male developers. But... So hopefully this Huff revitalization put some ha- put some money into hands that it hasn't traditionally gone to in our city. Yeah, it's it's nice to see it. You know, I covered city council when Fannie Lewis was the councilwoman, the late councilwoman, and she put so much effort trying to get it to turn around and called on the Cleveland Clinic in the center of it to try and invest in the neighborhood, which it has. It has it has done a lot of that in more recent years. But it's it's so close to downtown. It has so much to offer, and it has just lain fallow. Uh, and you're right. It's great to see residents of Cleveland, like Sheila Wright, being the ones that are leading the investment. Well, it's it's about dang time. We've seen lots of development, you know, percolate up on the near west side. But Huff is in an ideal location in our town. It it should be it should be a hopping neighborhood. And it should be an opportunity for those who live there. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, let's talk about another Steve Litt story. Solon joins Mayfield and a Cleveland neighborhood becoming the latest place for overwrought residents to paint a bike trail as a haven for rapists and criminals. <laughs> Why are they spo- so opposed to this trail like, in Solon? What is wrong with people? I mean, this is taking nimbyism to a whole new level. I just can't understand it. I, I'm picturing Steve Litt banging his head against the wall at this city council meeting. <laughs> so, um, so Solon City Council is scheduled to vote on this tomorrow. And what's on the table is an agreement with the Cleveland Metro Parks to design, build, manage, and maintain this trail on this long-neglected Wheeling and Lake Erie Railroad Company right-of-way that the city bought in 1992. It's 2.1 miles. It'll cost the city up to $4.25 million. And it's designed to connect Solon through neighboring Bentleyville to the Chagrin River, the Metro Park South Chagrin Reservation, and lovely Chagrin Falls, you know, popcorn shop, waterfall, shopping district. But at the city council hearing last week, opponents of this trail said that the project would become a magnet for voyeurs, pedophiles, and thieves. And 
Steve reported that some residents came to the microphone in tears because their properties would touch some portion of this trail, and they were terrified for their safety and their property values. And one guy brought his young daughter to stand next to him at the podium as he talked about how concerned he was for her safety because of this bike trail. And they said, you know, the city has no business spending their tax dollars on what they view as a totally pointless frill. So Steve sounded kind of hopeful in his story that reasonable minds would eventually prevail here. I guess quite a few proponents of the trail also spoke at the meeting and talked about the benefits of building it. And they really set the record straight about how property values are actually increased by proximity to such a wonderful amenity. But if that doesn't work, the Solon project is probably going to end up the way the Mayfield Heights project did, you know, and and, and an ex- expanded sidewalk linked to Edgewater Park on Lake Avenue in Cleveland. Both of those were completely shot down over these crazy fears about safety and and uh, thievery on the trail. Yeah, I just I I would love to have a bike trail touching my backyard. I've quit riding my bike because texters in their cars are such a danger if you're on the road. And if you had protected bike trails, you'd have a, a, an ability to get around. Can you imagine just like going right it. out your backyard on your bike yeah. and hopping on the trail? I mean, it would what be is great, wrong with people? But, But, you know, I don't want to run into child molesters and rapists (laughs) out there, Leila. I don't get it. I hope they pass it. I hope uh, Mayfield changes its mind eventually, too. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We had one big weekend in Cleveland with the NBA All-Star Game. Unlike the draft, the NFL draft, unlike the Major League Baseball, this brought just enormous numbers of celebrities and all sorts of fun to town. I mean, we actually had Michael Jordan and LeBron James greeting each other on the floor at halftime when they brought in all the NBA legends. Mark Bona looked at the debate, though, about the NBA logo as part of this. And Courtney, he brought up some things about that logo that is going to have to be a much more serious consideration. Yeah, so the way that that Mark kind of framed this is there was a multimedia artist here in town as part of the festivities this weekend, Hank Willis Thomas. He created a series of quilts that kind of reimagine what the logo would be if you used um, a a different silhouette in the logo. Right now, the logo is of Jerry West, um, a player from many decades ago. (laughs) And, um, and, 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 you know, Mark and his story kind of you know, points out what everybody knows. The game has changed since the the, the logo was made into Jerry West. Uh, three quarters of the players are black. All, all the all the crazy talent we think of, you know, in recent years, Michael Jordan, LeBron James. Should we go back and reconsider the logo, and 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 make it be the silhouette of some of today's stars, not the old white star from from yesteryear? Or figure out a way to celebrate the diversity of the league. I mean, it doesn't have to be any individual player. It could be a bunch of players. It's interesting because the NBA commissioner says, not even looking at this now, but given the way things have rolled over the past few years, my bet is the pressure will build to make this much more inclusive than it is now. It doesn't help that the silhouette is white. And silhouettes can be black or white. There were lots of silhouettes made in the a century ago of of white people that were black but this just happens to be a white silhouette which sends them the wrong message for the league is what people are arguing in mark's story good piece by mark check it out on cleveland.com 
You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about the news. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens.